me tell you something that I fear personally, and really it's, it's kind of an occupational hazard, and that is it's when, it's when holy things become common things. It's when extraordinary things become ordinary. And that can happen just because of the fact that we do, we gather in this place and we go through these uh, movements, you know, every week. We come together and we sing these songs and we do all the things that we do together. And if we're not extremely careful, we can kind of put things on automatic pilot and it just sort of becomes usual. It just sort of becomes ordinary. And we forget the fact that God himself is in this space. It's one of the reasons I love the story in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 28, it's where Jacob is at Bethel. And you know, if if you're reading through the book of Genesis, there are really four uh, main figures in the book. There's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, and there's Joseph. Well, Well, Jacob, one day, he's traveling, he's on this journey, he comes to Bethel, and he rests that evening, and he has this incredible dream. And really, it's an amazing dream. And in that dream, he has this picture of, of this ladder. And, and there's and angels ascending and, and descending. And the very top of the ladder is God. And in, in Jacob's dream, God says some very wonderful things and great things to him. God says to Jacob that, that he's going to give him the land, that he's going to be blessed, that he and all of his offspring are going to be blessed. It's this wonderful moment. And then finally Jacob wakes up and he says this. He says, surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. And then he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place. Now certainly I've never had a dream quite like that. I've never experienced exactly what Jacob has experienced. I've never had this vision of of heaven being opened and, and angels ascending and descending. And yet, I've, ha- I've been in places before, I've been in worship experiences before, and my, my mind was a, a thousand miles away. And by the way, we come to the New Testament in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, and Jesus, interestingly, he uses this image for himself. Jesus is the ladder. Jesus opens the way for us to God. It's, it's like now we can come boldly the Hebrew writer will say, into the very presence of God. And so there have been moments when I've gathered in this space and I've sung the songs that we sung and my mind was a thousand miles away. And I'd forgotten that surely the Lord was in this place. Or we gather around that table and take bread and wine. And I thought about a lot of things. But maybe I didn't realize that Actually, the host wasn't Don Milam today, but the host was Jesus. Jesus was the one who breaks the bread and shares the wine. Surely the Lord is in this place. And I've been sitting where you're sitting before, and I've heard the preacher preach, and I've listened to the message for a little while, but my mind begins to wander, and I forget that this word that's being proclaimed is the very word of God, and I've forgotten that surely the Lord is in this place. So today we begin this message series that I mentioned a moment ago, this message series that, that I'm calling In Search of Wonder, and I've, I've called the message series that because, you see, that's what people are looking for. Everybody we meet, they may not realize that they're looking for something more. They're looking for, for some, some wonder. 
And the only person, the only thing big enough to fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts is God himself there in search of wonder. And we gather in this space week in and week out and we're reminded that God is present and God is with us and it makes all the difference in the world. And so I think when we understand that God is present, there's this sense in which God is present always. Psalm 139 teaches that God is omnipresent. He's with us at home. He's with us when we're in the car. He's with us all the time. But there's another sense in which we get to experience, and and scholars call this phrase, God's manifest presence. There's a sense in which God is with us in a special way when His people come together in His name with the singular purpose to worship and, and to acknowledge who He is. That's a very powerful idea when you think about it. So for the next two or three weeks, I want us to spend some time thinking about different aspects of our worship to God. And so I wanted to kick this message series off by looking at one of my favorite Old Testament books. And really, and you may have not thought of this before, but really it's a book about worship. And it's the second book in your Bible that we know as Exodus. And Terence Fredheim and his helpful commentary on the book of Exodus helps me to see sort of the, the movement in the book and really it describes our own lives because when the book opens, the people of God in the first couple of chapters in Exodus, they're in, they're in, idol- they're in bondage, they're in slavery. And when the book closes, the Spirit of God, the presence of God fills this, this tabernacle and the people worship. And so really, the movement in our life is from bondage to worship. Now that speaks to me powerfully because that's my own story. You see, often we don't don't experience this wonder that we're talking about because we're enslaved. We can find ourselves enslaved by many things. Maybe we're enslaved by sin, or perhaps we're enslaved by a bad attitude, or maybe by wrong thinking. Some are enslaved by the power of an addiction. And because we're, we're enslaved, we're not really able to walk free. We're not able to really thrive. We're in chains. And you see, God, God wants to free us. God wants to liberate us. He, he wants us to experience this life that is full and rich, and yet too often we don't really experience that because we're worshiping some idols. We feel ourselves enslaved. But the other plot line in the story of Exodus, which is... I think very interesting is when the book opens the people of God are forced to construct these buildings for Pharaoh but the people of God are are, are liberated or freed by Moses he's the leader that comes on the scene to lead them out of bondage they're freed and then suddenly they're involved in another building project they're they're giving all sorts of things so that they might build this this building for God, the worship of God, the tabernacle. A lot of Exodus is about building the tabernacle. But between these two building projects, this this building project where folks are, are building, you know, for Pharaoh and and the building project where people are building this building project, the tabernacle for God, the people kind of get sidetracked, they get distracted like we often do, and they're involved in another building project. And in Exodus chapter 32, it's the chapter right before our scripture reading today, they find themselves distracted, sidetracked, and they construct, they build this idol. 
Now, Exodus 32 seems a bit archaic to us. They build this golden calf. And we might think, that's a rather strange thing. Why would anyone, instead of serving God, why would they serve some idol? That seems like it doesn't even relate to us. And yet the interesting thing is we might be more prone to idolatry than we care to admit. I love how Tim Keller describes idolatry. He says, idolatry is turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. Think about that for a moment. It's turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. We may think to ourselves, I would never worship an idol, and yet, yet we're prone to idolatry if we turn a good thing into an ultimate thing. So a, a good thing like our marriage, that's wonderful. We can turn that into an ultimate thing. Or maybe you know, someone we're dating, someone we're in love with, that's a good thing. It can become an ultimate thing. It, it, our language betrays us sometimes. Have you noticed this? We'll say, wow, he, what does he do? He worships the ground she walks on. Now, we know what he means by that. We know what that statement means. Someone is head over heels in love with that person, but it might betray something different. A good thing can become an ultimate thing, and it's an idol. What about our kids? We love our kids, right? Our kids are a good thing most days. Can I get an amen from that? Good things can become an ultimate thing. And we're, we might be idolatrous. Or what about a career? Why is it? Why is it that there are some men out there that will sacrifice everything for their career? Their health, their wives, their families? Why is that? It's become, it, it's because it's become an idol. We worship there. A good thing becomes an ultimate thing. And our lives get out of whack. I mean, we read this story in Exodus chapter 32 about the people of God. They're, they're, they're distracted and, you know, they're weary. They wonder, where is Moses? Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments, you know, on the mountain. And while he's gone, you know, his brother Aaron, he doesn't stand strong, you know. They, and they build this, uh, this idol. We might think, how crazy is that? And yet, friends, you and I both know that we're tempted. We're so tempted to build our own golden calves. This really then brings us to Moses. And today, Moses is going to teach us a couple of things that are really important about worship. Now, Moses' leadership and his relationship with with the Lord has matured over the years, and we see that in the book of Exodus. The word failure is not too strong a word to describe the first 40 years of Moses' life. You know that, that murder drove him out of town to live in the desert for the next 40 years of his life. And in that desert, that's when he really matures and seasoned is seasoned and that's when we he hears from god isn't it interesting that we often need a desert experience so we can hear a word from god that's moses and that's a lot of us and now when moses is 80 years old he has this burning bush bush experience god calls him to lead the people out of bondage now these people have been in bondage for 400 long years you would think these are the kinds of people that would be easily led you would think that these would be the people who would be so grateful they would sort of have an attitude that says whatever you say moses but not these people i mean it's like herding cats Moses has a difficult time leading these people. Those 400 years while they were in bondage, they they became fearful and distrustful and skeptical. And so this was a difficult task for this this 80-year-old leader. And while Moses is up on the mountain, 
having this incredible experience, receiving the Ten Commandments, the people of God, they build this golden calf, and God is angry. And Moses, like a a good leader, and he's an incredible leader, Moses goes to bat for the people he's leading. And so finally, God, God speaks, and God says, Moses, you go ahead and leave. You take these people. Uh, you go ahead and lead them to the land flowing with milk and honey. I'll tell you what I'll do, Moses. I'll even drive out the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and every other warring tribe. I'll drive out all of those people for you. I mean, I'm going to give you everything. Think about what God was offering Moses and the people. He was giving them land. He was giving them a place. He was offering them prosperity. I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. What that meant was... I'm going to give you this place where you're going to really thrive, accrue wealth. I'm going to give you everything that you need. Prosperity, peace, property. Oh yeah, but there's just one thing. Moses, I'm not going with you. You and the people are going to have to go by yourself. I'm not going. And when the people of God find this out, it says that they began to weep. Though their hearts were hardened, though they were, they were idolatrous people, they knew that their very identity depended on God being with them. And that's really what we want. That's really what we need. I mean, ultimately, this, this God-shaped vacuum in our heart, it's not filled. We can have all the money, we can have all the land, we can have all the peace, we can have all that stuff, and yet without God, we, like the people of God here, know it's not enough. And so the people of God begin to weep, and what does Moses do? Moses once again intercedes for his people, and so he goes into this place called the Tent of Meeting. It was really an interesting thing. In Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11, Moses goes into this Tent of Meeting, and I love this phrase. It says that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one who speaks to a friend. You'll not find another passage in all of Scripture that describes a more intimate, per, uh, a more intimate relationship a person has with God. This describes a man who had come to know God in a deep and intimate way. I want to remind you that Moses now is 80-something years old. This kind of relationship doesn't develop in a day or two, or in a week or two, or in a month or two, or a year or two. Moses had spent time with God. He knew God, and now it says he's speaking to God face to face. And I wonder, what what do you ask or talk about when you meet with God face to face? Or let me ask this question another way. If you could ask something of God. If you could ask one thing of God, what would you ask? And how we answer that question might say a lot about who we are. And so Moses has this wonderful, wonderful moment. What does he ask God for? Moses doesn't ask for the things that that we might ask. He doesn't seek prestige. He doesn't ask for power. He doesn't ask for greater leadership ability. I mean, after all, he's having a difficult time leading these people. It might be that he just says, God, would you you supernaturally empower me with this this ability to lead these stiff-necked people? Moses doesn't even ask to be released from this call to lead them. 
I mean, if that had been me, I might have wanted to say, God, would you just, just release me from this, from this call that you put on my life? To, I mean, it's too hard. It's too difficult. He doesn't ask for any of that. What does Moses seek when he comes in the very presence of God? He says in verse 13, If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I might know you and continue to find favor with you. What does Moses want? He wants God to teach him so that he might know him. He doesn't merely want knowledge. He's not seeking more information. That's not really what he wants. He wants to know him in in an even deeper way. It sounds a lot like Paul to me in the book of Philippians where he says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, I want to know you. And it's Moses. Would you teach me your ways so that I might know you? And I'm convinced that the more we know about God, the more we love God. And the more we love God, the more we can't wait to worship God, to praise His his holy name. And God responds to his request. It's really quite striking what he says. The Lord says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I'm told the Hebrew word for presence is the word face. You know, when you look into someone's face, well, you really get to know them. I mean, when my boys come in, you know, and and I just look into their face, I can tell if they're sad, or if they're lonely, or if they're weary, or if they're on top of the world. You look into someone's face, and you really get to know them. And there are those situations where someone won't look at you. And that's a difficult thing, isn't it? And yet here, here's Moses. And he meets face to face with God. And what does he want? He wants to be taught so they can know him better. And then God says, my presence, my presence will go with you. And he says, I will give you rest. You see, rest is where pre- uh, we find rest in the presence of God. When you're in God's presence, we can lean back and not worry and not stress because we know God has this. That's one of the things that our, our gatherings on Sunday ought to do for us. It ought to give us oh, a sense of rest because we come into the presence of God. We hear a word from God. We're reminded of who God is. We're reminded that God has this. We might come into this space with all sorts of worry and fear and stress and all the rest. We shouldn't leave more stressed. We come into the presence of God and we experience his rest. But Moses asks one other thing. Moses says, God, teach me your ways so that I might know you. But then he also says, now show me your glory. He says that in verse 18. The word glory is a, is a big word. It's a, it's a summary word. It's all that God is. The glory of God is the weight of God. The glory of God, it's, it's his honor and renown and majesty. Moses has a hunger for God, and he desires an experience with God. And this is perhaps, I think, the most audacious prayer you'll ever find in Scripture. Back, I don't know, a year or two ago, I preached a message series, and I called it Pray Big. I think this might be the largest prayer we find in the Bible. 
God, would you, would you show me your glory? I want an experience with you. I want to know you for who you really are. I'm wondering, when we come to church, are we tired of business as usual? Are we tired of, of not having our souls stirred, of merely going through the motions? Don't you really want God to show up in your life? I think we can learn a lot from Moses. And so next Sunday morning in the message, we're going to talk about what do we need to do to prepare to meet with God, to prepare to worship Him every Sunday. We're going to look at a passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. But I want to conclude today by just mentioning a couple of things by way of introduction that will help us as we think about how we, how we get prepared to meet with God. So what if every, every Saturday evening or sometime before we got here, before, before Sunday, our prayer was what Moses prayed? What if our first prayer before we even got here, was, Lord, teach me. Lord, teach me. Not so merely I can have more information, but I want to know you in a deeper way. And then what if our other prayer was, now, Lord, would you show me your glory? What if we came with the, the heart of Moses? What if we came with a hunger for God and we desired an experience with God? What if, like Moses, we said, Lord, teach us that we might know you? And Lord, Show us your glory. But once we, we get here on Sundays, here are a couple of things I want you to consider. First, just acknowledge the presence of God. We are entering into His presence. That, that simple move can change the way we worship. You see, if I believe God is here, I mean, if I really believe that God is present, it's going to change how I sing. It's going to change how I worship because I'm not, I'm not singing to you all. Oh, there, there's certainly a secondary reason we gather in this space. I get built up and encouraged. I love it when I look around at a full room and I look around and see men and women sing. But ultimately, I'm not, I'm not singing to you. I'm singing to God. We come in this space before an audience of one. And if I believe that, it'll change how I sing. None of this sort of mumbling through stuff, kind of slouching back, kind of getting real, you know, comfortable I'm in the presence of God. In the Middle Ages, there were no pews. Imagine that. In the Middle Ages, when people came into these cathedrals to worship God, they did not sit. Well, why is that? Because you don't sit in the presence of God. Well, there's something we can learn from that. We can sit, but man, I don't know if I'm, want, I'm wanting to slouch. It'll change the way we listen to a sermon. Because you see, the sermon should be the proclaimed Word of God. God is speaking to us through His Word. It'll, it'll change the way we gather around the table when we understand we're in the presence of God and that Jesus Christ is the host. The second thing, actively listen to, for the voice of God. We acknowledge the presence of God. And second of all, we actively listen for the voice of God. As we enter as we encounter the Lord in worship, what if we came with a posture that said, Lord, what do I need to hear this morning? And you might hear God's word for you in one of the songs that we sang. A moment ago, we sang the song, In His Presence. And there's a line that says, In His presence, there's comfort, there's peace. And maybe you've come, and that's what you need. In His presence, that's what you find. You might hear the Word of God in, in a comment that's made around the table. Maybe some of the things that Don shared today about being in a world that's so busy and loud. Maybe that was God's Word for you. Maybe we need to just sort of unplug at times 
and to be still and quiet. Or maybe the, the word from, from God for you, you'll, you'll hear it in the sermon, in the proclaimed word, or in the scriptures that we read. But, but what if we acknowledge, or what, what if we actually actively listen for the voice of God? When you enter into this worship environment, ask, Lord, Lord, what do I need to hear? Maybe before the first song is sung, you just prayed that prayer. Lord, what do you want me to hear today? People are in search of wonder. And ultimately, it's found in God. And so today, let me ask you a question. Do you have a relationship with the Lord? James, the Lord's own brother, made this very simple statement in James chapter 4 and verse 8. He said, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Isn't that a beautiful promise? If we draw near to God, and maybe we draw near to him in worship, we draw near to him when we come into this place, the promise is God will come near to you. And so as we begin this new year, is there a distance between you and God? Maybe you need to come near to the Lord by establishing a relationship with Him in simple trusting faith. The promise is if we come near to Him, He will come near to us. And the only way we come near to God is on bended knee. Today, if you have a need we can help you with, I'll be down front. We'll have shepherds and their wives in the back corners. We would love to help you in any way. Let's worship.